Alexander Kesh is the professor of Islamic studies at the University of Michigan and academic director of an Islamic studies program sponsored by the St. Petersburg State University, Russia. His academic interests include Islamic mysticism, Quranic studies, the history of Muslim theological, philosophical, and juridical thought, and modern Islamic Islamist movement in comparative perspective. He has numerous academic and instructional publications on these subjects, including 12 books. His most recent books in English are Islam in Historical Perspective and Sufism, A New History of Islamic Mysticism. Alexander Kinish currently serves as section editor for Sufism on the editorial board of the Encyclopedia of Islam, third edition, and is executive editor of the Encyclopedia of Islamic Mysticism and the Handbooks of Islamic Mysticism book series associated with it. He lives in Ann Harbor, Michigan. First, I would like to thank everyone before showing you the PowerPoint presentation, uh, which I'll try to make as lively as possible because of the format, as you know, it's very difficult to engage people who are hundreds, thousands of miles away from you, uh, as well as students who are watching you in, uh, from their uh, screens um, in class. It's a pleasure and privilege to speak to you. I'll share you, with you my observations as to how the subjective personal experience, mystical experience, becomes mystical cosmology and metaphysics at the hands of Ibn Arabi and his followers. So I would like to thank Stephen and Denise for organizing this session. And uh, I would also like to uh, greet Marcia Hermanson, who serves on the same uh, editorial board of the Handbook of Sufi Studies that we're uh, editing uh, together with uh, E.J. Brill based in Leiden, in the Netherlands, and in Boston, the United States. So the first volume is coming out in December of this year. It will deal with Sufi institutions. But today, my presentation will deal with the more subtle issues, less tangible. It's not brick and mortar, no institutions, but only uh, pure thought and uh, pure tasting as we'll find out. So Abu Bakr al-Kalabadi, it's a, a place in, uh, Kalabad is a place in today's Uzbekistan near Bukhara. He talks about tasting uh, in his book uh, that Arthur John Arbery, the British uh, scholar, translated as Doctrine of the Sufis. In fact, it is called the Book of Introduction to the way of the folk of the Sufis or the folks of Sufism. A skeptical theologian, Mutakallim, ill disposed to Sufism, asked a contemporary of Al Hallaj, uh, Abu Abbas ibn Alta, uh, who died in uh, 922 in Baghdad. He was beaten to death when he tried to intercede on behalf of Hallaj by his own sandals, the guard of the caliphs did that to him because the Halaj, uh, Halaj was uh, doomed to death. And uh, when he came to petition, the caliph or the vizier who was responsible for that event, he was not only expelled from the court, but he was beaten to death. So the, the legend goes. So before he was killed, he responded to the remark 
of a skeptical theologian, which you can read on your screens now. So the theologian basically accuses, you can read uh, the, the verbatim, accuses Sufis of using strange, unusual terms to conceal a vicious doctrine. And Ibn Atta responded, we only do this because we're jealous of God, because we are completely under his power or in his hands. And we don't want others to taste the sweetness of this term, or rather the sensations that this term uh, conceal. So why I uh, started with that, because Sufis, as you know well, and the Bonarati is a vivid example of that. They use a lot of special terms, some of which are indeed incomprehensible to the outsiders. And as you can see, this custom of using this certain terms with different meanings, not with their usual meanings, was the custom that developed already in, at the early stages of Sufism development. And these are the terms for tasting and uh, drinking. Here I uh, will I quote from Ibn Arabi's Utuhat al-Mukiyya, with which you are all familiar. Hopefully at some point the complete translation will come out and we'll be able to enjoy it in English. But the Arabic text, which I translated here, says that God bestows as he wills upon every type of little form from the knowledges of specification, a knowledge through which he is known to no one other than the recipient specifically. In other words, each person has his or her own predisposition and God provides knowledge to that individual in accordance with this predisposition. Istiyadad, it's called in Arabic. So these are the knowledges of tastings that are neither communicated nor told. In other words, he refers to irrational, intuitive, suprasensory uh, knowledges, not to the rational knowledges or traditional knowledges acquired through uh, from, from one person to another. It's a specific knowledge that is beyond reason and beyond the transmitted tradition of Makri. No one knows them but those who have tasted them. It is not within the realm of possibility for him who has tasted them to convey them to him who has not tasted them. Again, this idea is probably also obvious to most of you. You uh, We talk about the uh, difficulties communicating one's personal knowledge acquired through mystical experience to others. Because, as Ibn Arabi tells us, everyone has special channel to God, and God communicates to him or her through that channel a specific type of knowledge that he compares to tasting. If you haven't tasted the sweetness, for instance, of an apple, how would you describe it? Would you call it red? Would you call it green? It's sweetness. If no one has tasted a, a sweet apple before, he or she would not be able to recognize the reference. So the term tasting or taste is discussed at some length in the works of the individuals who are mentioned here in my PowerPoint presentation on this slide. 
Abu Nasr al-Sarraja. To see, these are classic Abu, Abu Bakr al-Kalabadi, who, whom I already quoted, Abu Abd al-Rahman al-Sulami, Abu al-Qasim al-Kushari, um, Abu al-Hassan al-Sirjani. It's a recent discovery. He was not known to um, the British scholars who tried to reconstruct the tradition, especially Nicholson and Arbery. But he was recently discovered, and uh, we now know his work through the, thanks to Professor Ratke and uh, Bilal Orfali and some other scholars. And finally, the last person that appears on this list is the author of the first extant treatise on Sufism in Persian. The previous ones were written, had been written in uh, Arabic. So Zauk is closely linked to mystical experiences, as you already saw. Zauk is also discussed within the context of how mystics or Sufis practice their Sufism. And the main form of practice, as you no doubt know very well, is the dhikr and sama, that is, recollecting God's name. So there is an intimate link, Sufi authorities argue, between tasting and uh, the practice of the recollection of God's name, either collectively or in individually. And uh, the other important point that Dauk, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's misspelled here, it's D-H-A. Uh, WQ is associated with ecstatic states of finding or encountering or meeting God. Wajd Tawajid Mawajid, an early Sufi from Syria, Abu Abdullah Aruzbari, who has a Persian name, so it means probably he originally hailed from Iran or Persia, confirms the intimate link between tasting and mystical ecstasy or the experience of discovering or encountering God. Tasting is the beginning of ecstatic states, mawajid. When the people of absence from God drink, that is probably they drink wine, that people who are, do not care about God, they lose their consciousness. When the people of presence with God drink, they come alive. So as you can see, there's a juxtaposition of being absent from God and being present with God, and the presence of with God intoxicates you. Abu Nasr al-Saraj, um, who comes from Tuz, in, it's a, a town near today's Mashhad in Iran, in northern Iran. He um, says in his book of, of uh, Kitab al-Luma, Book of Flashes, usually translated as Book of Flashes, but I think it simply means the book of the essentials of Sufism. Luma is the smallest piece of food or morsel that keeps you alive. So it's the essential, something that is essential for, for everyone to know about Sufism. So in his book, uh, which he composed in, um, in Persia, in Iran, in today's Eastern Iran, Khorasan, he talks about the taste, uh, various, Sufi states or psychological, spiritual states of finding God present in, in his creation. He talks about sobriety, intoxication, 
uh, self-annihilation in God's subsistence. And um, he uh, continually draws a parallel between physical inebriation caused by tasting wine on the one hand and spiritual intoxication or trance produced by the mystic's encounter with his divine beloved. Saraj is not alone. Uh, many Su early Sufis used a wine poetry to communicate their ideas. They quote extensively one of the major wine poets, such as Abu Nuwas, who died in the early ninth century, who was a court poet, but who praised wine. Although my good friend and colleague, James Montgomery at Cambridge, says that he was a teetotaler and it was simply was a, a literary conceit. God knows best, uh, we don't know, but he wrote a lot of spirited descriptions of wine parties, uh, drinking parties, boon companions. And what is interesting that Sufis use uh, his poetry to communicate their idea of a psychological state of spiritual intoxication in God's presence. Sarajis uses conceptual and cl or classificatory triads constantly. He says that Sufi states come not even in pairs, but in triads. For instance, he takes dhauk, uh, the tasting, not as a freestanding independent concept, but the first unit in the triad of mystical uh, states in which dhauk, uh, the tasting, precedes drinking and quenching thirst. And commenting on, on a saying about drinking by the renowned Egyptian Sufi, Dhunun al-Misri, who died in 960, a Saraj averse, when God desired to give them lovers of God, drink from his, from the cup of his love, he first gave, gave them a foretaste, though, of its pleasure and a tantalizing lick of sweetness. Saraj concludes uh, his discussion of tasting by quoting a poetic passage according to which only the person who has himself experienced or tasted the loss of the beloved can fully comprehend and relate to the tragedy of bereavement that he reads about or hears about. Al-Qushayri, uh, in his famous epistle on Sufism, which is still being used by Sufis as a training manual, draws numerous parallels. Uh, so as you can see, he lived about... Um, 80 years, uh, 60 years after Asaraj, he draws parallels between the mystical states of presence, hudur, sobriety, sahab, absence, khayba, and drunkenness. To sum up these early Sufi discussions of the states of tasting and drunkenness, drunkenness causes the mystic to lose his sense of himself and his surroundings. Sobriety, on the other hand, sharpens his awareness of both himself and the things that surround him. When he is drunk, he sees nothing but God. When he is sober, he sees God and his creatures simultaneously, or rather he sees God in everything or behind everything. I will proceed to the final manual uh, in which uh, drinking and uh, tasting 
mentioned Ujwiri's Kashf al-Mahju, the unveiling of that which is veiled. This Persian Sufi lived in the late 11th century, mid-11th and late 11th century, and uh, he died in Ghazna in present-day Afghanistan. He emphasizes the somatic and sensuous nature of drinking and tasting. He says, here I'm using the translation of Reynold Nicholson, a professor, Cambridge professor and teacher of uh, Arthur Arbery, whom I mentioned earlier. This is more or less a paraphrase, but the Sufis call, but that's actually actual works of Ujwiri. The Sufis call the sweetness of piety, the delight of miraculous grace, and the pleasure of intimacy, intimacy with God, of course, shurb, drinking. And they can uh, do nothing without the delight of shurb. So it's their major driving force, according to Ujwiri, the motive. And this body's drink is of water, so the heart's drink is of spiritual pleasure and sweetness. Tasting, though, resembles shurb, but it is used in reference to pleasure and pain alike. One says, I tasted sweetness, or I tasted affliction. So, as you can see, he is interested in the semantic underpinnings of these terms and emphasizes that drinking is always pleasurable, whereas tasting may be also painful. And before we proceed to Ibn Arabi, this is the final slide, which is important because it anticipates what I'm going to say in the rest of my presentation, uh, focusing on Ibn Arabi and also on juxtaposition between Ibn Arabi and Al-Hallaj that was made, not by me, but by the great French Islamologist Louis Massignon, who died in 1962. Al-Qushayri refers to the cognitive aspects of tasting and drinking. He gives a Sarajis triad, Dauk Shirb, that is Dauk tasting, Shirb Shurb is uh, drinking and quenching thirst, Ri cognitive connotation by describing tasting and drinking as fruits of divine self-disclosure. Hang on to this, tajalli, it's important. The outcome of divine self-unveilings, kashafat, or of sudden divine visitations or occurrences, waridat. This is important because he anticipates some later developments in Sufi gnosiology slash epistemology and metaphysics. So this is the summary, again, of and related terms in early Sufi literature. Dauk uh, and related terms, that is intoxication, uh, drinking, quenching thirst, in early Sufi literature meant to convey psychological, primarily ecstatic states experienced by Sufis in their quest to achieve closeness to God and to savor God's presence, that the pleasure and the, the sensation, the pleasurable sensation, this inevitably entails. I'm sorry for the garbled text here. The somatic, emotive, ecstatic connotation of these states to the point of the mystical total self-abnegation and even self-sacrifice are obvious and undeniable, at least to Louis Massillon, 
who mentions these states repeatedly in his famous book, Louis Massignon, Essay on the Origins of Technical Language of Islamic Mysticism. However, in Kushairi's epistle, we already find a correlation. I translated it into English. It was published in Reading, and I use this uh, uh, work a lot in my discussion. Uh, in Kushairi's epistle, we find already a correlation between experiential aspects of Sufi states, Ahwal, and mystical metaphysics. So the personal mystical experience becomes a cosmic experience. I will say more about this in, uh, when I come to Ibn Arabi's ideas. And what is important, Al-Qushairi's epistle mentions God's self-unveiling, kashufat uh, or kash, and tajalli, self-manifestation in material existence, and how this unveiling and self-manifestation of God is received by an individual mystic. Now we come to the metaphysical term in Sufism that resulted in what Al-Ghazali in the East, Lisan al-Din ibn al-Khatib, who lived in the 14th century in Granada, but he was killed in Maghrib by his enemies, and Ibn Khaldun, who lived in North Africa and then in Egypt, they described this term as the Sufism of the philosophers, Tasawf al-Falasifa or Mutafalsifa, As-Sufiya al-Mutafalsifa, that is, those who pre- uh, Sufis who pretend to be philosophers. Louis Massignon, who's a wonderful French intellectual who dedicated his whole life to studying the legacy of the Sufi martyr Al-Hallaj, of whom you may have heard, probably you've heard, he was executed in 921, the same year his uh, intercessor, Ibn Atah, perished at the court. Louis Massignon debunked this development as a retreat of later Sufism, especially Ibn al-Arabi, into what he calls unverifiable cosmologies, sterile mind games, esoteric science clubs, and opium dens of the supernatural. I quote his essay, Check it. Also, there's a French original, which you may consult. Now, how this metaphysical term is reflected in uh, one Sufi, late Sufi's writings, Ibn Arabi. He attributes the term tasting not to the mystic seeking proximity with God or seeking the company of God, but to God himself. So the state of opening, that is the creation of the universe, is the state of linking the act of origination, the queen, to the things brought into being, or if you wish, you can say the act of applying God's power of predetermination, Qudrat, to its object, Maqdur. And then he says a remarkable phrase, only God has the taste to accomplish this, doubt. No one can perceive it because neither manifestation of God, self-manifestation of God, nor unveiling cash accessible to the humans are taking place here. Thus, Ibn Arabi argues that God's taste of things implies their being transferred 
from the realm of relative non-existence to the one of actual existence, that is, the empirical world which we inhabit. This ability and experience uh, lies beyond the can of human comprehension, including that of the prophets and messengers of God. Only God can create things by tasting them. It's a beautiful metaphor, uh, no doubt, but we find plenty of those in Ibn Arabi. It simply is related to my argument, so I chose this one. Ibn Arabi talks about Zawq also in his Fusul Salhikam. Today, scholars prefer to translate it as ringstones of wisdom, according to the most recent translations, but the bezels of wisdom are still being used uh, Ralph Austin's famous translation. But Abrahamov and um, Dudley, uh, they use ringstones. Ibn Arabi refines his earlier discussion of Dalk, quoting the Quranic description of God as being witness to everything. He asserts that God knows by witnessing, not by intellectual reflection. God's witnessing is akin, he uses the Arabic, kadelika, to tasting. So God's witnessing, shuhud, is the same as dalk, tasting, which is gained directly through unfathomable innate experience, not through intellectual cognition or intellectual reasoning. Ibn Arabi then concludes, I did involved. This is sound knowledge, the rest being nothing but guessing and conjecture, and as such, not, all, not knowledge at all. So, Zauk is the ultimate knowledge, the foremost knowledge, against which, or in comparison to which, everything else, any other knowledge, fades into insignificance. However, as you know, Ibn Arabi's texts and... Uh, his mind is full of paradoxes. He, he then in a, elsewhere says that there is a certain category of people endowed with the special powers of imagination, uh, of fantasy, who can gain a proper perception of the paradoxical creative principle, according to which the divine imagination, which has no tangible experience empirical existence yeah god's imagination definitely is not tangible or material and cannot be perceived brings forth the material universe perceived by our senses this argues ibn arabi is a rare and uncommon knowledge that one can obtain exclusively through direct tasting with dog so he admits contrary to what he has said earlier or in another treatise in, um, that one can taste things, approximating the taste of things by God. In, in some, tasting is the superior, almost godlike way of cognition, and it also a cognition cum creation. One cannot but think about the Hindi the Hindu uh, Maya here, but I don't want to go to, to engage in comparisons here. 
because they are treacherous. Ibn Arabi repeatedly asserts the superiority of intuitive, divinely inspired knowledge of divine realities over the uh, haqqaiq. The haqqaiq are the things the way they are, designed by God or devised by God, and uh, these realities are covered by external appearances, which we all know deceive. Over the rational epistemology, he says that rational epistemology of uh, philosopher or rational uh, rationalist theologians, mutakallimun, fails, falls uh, to understand the divine realities. Uh, the uh, the uh, preferred intellectual method of rational inquiry that is used by philosophers and the rationalist theologians may indeed help them to confirm the unity of God and the uniqueness of God and assert his transcendent nature by means of an apophatic negation of their creaturely attributes. In other say, they say God is not this, not that. He is incomprehensible, uncomparable, transcendent, otherworldly. But a divinely inspired tasting and intuitive unveiling can combine both God's similarity and incomparability with his creatures. In other words, God's simultaneous transcendence and eminence. So tasting is the key here to understanding God's two modes of uh, uh, presence, transcendent and imminent. This thirst of the seeker of knowledge, and it's also this motif runs like a red thread across the entire texture of Ibn Arabi's text. The thirst of the seeker of knowledge is never quenched. Ibn Arabi insists that the Sufi Gnostics thirst for knowing God is never quenched because according to the Quran, the words of God are never exhausted. According to Ibn Arabi, these words are but the entities of his existent things. Therefore, the thirst of the seeker of knowledge never ceases. He never experiences quenching because his, uh, that is the seeker's innate preparedness, that constantly seeks knowledge. Once this knowledge has been gained, it gives him the preparedness for the ever new knowledge, whether rationally obtained or divinely inspired. I use here a passage from Futuhat, translated by Chittik in his Sufi path of knowledge. So, as you can see, that superior knowledge, but it's the this knowledge. Uh, <laughs> if I may say so, has a sting in its tail because it pr propels or impels you to seek more knowledge. So now seeing the grand master of Sufism from a critical perspective that was adopted by many Sufis and non-Sufis in particular, and also by the French Islamologist, Islamologue, Louis Massignon. 
we, we cannot but notice that the original Sufi notion of tasting undergoes a drastic change at the hands of uh, al-Sheikh al-Akbar and the later Sufis generally. The psychological and emotive state of a mystic seeking intimate relations with God is transposed onto the metaphysical plane to denote the desire of possible things, Munkinand, to taste thou the state of existence. Ibn Arabi's redefinition of the classical Sufi concept is indicative of what I have already described as the metaphysical turn in Sufism. Massignon has denounced it as an irremediable concession to syncretist monism. That is, the introduction into the an adulterated experiential gnosiology of early Sufism, exemplified for Massignon by Al-Hallaj, of the alien Hellenistic syncretic, syncretist vocabulary. Uh, this is, uh, unquote, this is uh, mentioned in uh, Massignon's essay. So, Massignon creates a binary opposition between the poet's burning lyric, that is Halaj's poetry, uh, describing his relations with God, uh, intimate relations, when he invites God as a loving, uh, uh, beloved guest into his heart, and the Gnostics calculated icy symbolism, unquote. He juxtaposes Halaj's simultaneous experiential phenomenon of Shatch. Shatch is, a, as you know, uh, ecstatic utterance, with Ibn Arabi's theosophical syncretism, which is nothing but a degenerate form of Halaj's, as well as Muhasibis, Abu Talib al-Makkis, and Ibn Karam's, Khalaj's authentic Sufism with its proselytizing apostolic universalism. Ibn Arabi's monism is a product of an alien platonic inspiration for Massignon. It abandoned the sophisticated psychological introspection of the authentic early Sufism and is thus responsible for the tragic, I quote, divorce between ascetic discipline and mystical theology. Again, uh, unquote, this is from his. Whether we agree with Massignon or not, uh, probably most of you won't, <laughs> in Ibn Arabi's universe, the original experiential, somatic, and emotive aspect of Dauk gives way to uh, sophisticated mystical gnosiology or epistemology ma'arifa, without, however, entirely losing its original psychological and somatic connotations. The result is a curious hybrid of mystical psychology and mystical metaphysics, that the British scholar of comparative religion, Gavin Flood, has aptly described as cosmological psychology. The problem with my and Massignon's analysis. And this is the final slide, so uh, I, I, I apologize for going a little bit longer than I expected, but we still will have time, about 40 minutes for discussion, maybe 35. The problem with my and Massignon's analysis, this is a self-reflection and also a reflection on the what is called Orientalists or Eurocentric notions that we use. 
as children of our age and culture shaped as it is by uh, enlightenment and its conceptualization of religious and spiritual phenomena as opposed to rational cognition, we may be using categories that were incongruent uh, with the primordial evidence that we attempt to analyze. Primordial, primordial textual evidence, I would add. In particular, by using modern Eurocentric methods and analytical tools to make sense of pre-modern Sufi discourses, we may be creating a distinction between knowledge, gnosis, and personal experience of the divine that was alien or irrelevant to the Sufi creators of these discourses. What is undeniable, in my view, is that these pre-modern Sufis did have a special doctrine and terminology, as attested by the critic of Sufism mentioned at the beginning of my talk. You use terms and ideas, uh, certain obscure ideas and, and obscure terms to conceal the viciousness of the doctrine. That doctrine was distinctive enough and strongly held by its adherents because it asserted the superiority of the way of knowing God over that of its competitors among the Fukaha, the Mutakallimun, and the Falasifa. So, and uh, that was my final statement. So, Sufism is a special type of knowledge that combines somatic, experiential um, uh, vocabulary and notions with metaphysics, uh, creating what, as what I already mentioned, is described as cosmological psychology, and creating a unique strain within the Islamic culture that we still consider to be relevant to our own experiences today, as the existence of a Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi society uh, attests. Thank you.